Good evening and welcome to At Humber. I'm Danielle Dupuy. Today we look at an anti-gay attack on Toronto Island, which leads to learning more about the LGBTQ history of violence. A report that looks at finding grocery store workers better jobs. And we dive into a few things coming this weekend and people are about to make a big splash. All that and more coming up on today's show on 96.9 Radio Humber. Toronto's LGBTQ community is still reeling after an alleged attack on one of their own on Toronto Island. 24-year-old David Gomez was on his way home from a day at the beach earlier this month when an altercation broke out with a group of strangers. They hurled homophobic insults at Gomez before physically attacking and leaving him unconscious with several broken bones. A GoFundMe campaign has raised almost $50,000 for his recovery and police are still investigating. Toronto is home to a vibrant LGBTQ community, but with it comes a history of violent incidents like this one. At Humber reporter Tyler Cheese speaks with historian Tom Hooper to learn more. What was your initial reaction when you first heard about the incident on Toronto Island last week? I heard about it as the community was sort of responding to this on social media. And one of the things that immediately struck me was how much the community was able to put this together to piece together what had happened and to come to the aid of the victim in this case. And what would you say to those who think attacks like this on LGBTQ plus people are a thing of the past? Like, I don't know about you, but I have yet to meet a gay man or a queer person in general who hasn't had something yelled at them from a passing car. There's something about that experience that seems to be so widely experienced by members of our community today. That was the same thing that happened in the 1970s. There were a lot of people who liked to, especially on the weekends, they would cruise up and down Young Street, get in their car and just sort of drive up and down Young Street. And that attracted a lot of uh, sort of rough guys from the suburbs who would come in and they would cause trouble. So there's still these experiences that bind queer communities together. And unfortunately, that's this, this violence, this homophobic violence it comes in many different forms. There have been a handful of higher profile incidents of violence against queer people in Toronto. Uh, the Bruce MacArthur murders come to mind. Can you speak to the city's overall history with homophobic violence? In the 1970s, there were increasing accounts of men who had gone missing or had been murdered. And in many of those cases, the murders went unsolved. In some cases, uh, the, the nature of the offense, how, how men would meet in anonymity, uh, meant it was difficult to often find suspects. But more often than not, it was because the police couldn't get cooperation from the community in trying to track down potential sub suspects. And that's because the community had a great deal of distrust with the police. The, if you called the police because you were worried about your friend or because you weren't sure if violence had taken place, you didn't know whether the cops were going to show up to help you or whether they were going to show up to arrest you. So when we see what happened with Bruce MacArthur, we see a similar pattern develop where 
you know, the police are just, they're not this trusted institution. And in the case of the Bruce MacArthur, we actually see the police dropping the ball really seriously. And getting us back to today with this alleged attack on David Gomez, do you think this reinforces the need for pride in 2021? Well, I, I make a distinction between pride corporation and the, the, the his, historical pride that must still be acknowledged, commemorated, celebrated, and must still be a protest. Uh, we do not need pride, corporate pride any longer. Our roots are protesting and standing up for the most marginalized in our communities. And we, when you have people who are going to Hanlon's point, which is, as far as I'm concerned, sacred ground for queers in Toronto. 1971, first pride picnic was at Hanlon's. And so when you have queer bashing happening there, we have to stand up against that. We have a a historical responsibility to stand up against violence, to stand up against uh, homophobia. And that's what we need to do. We, our job is not done. Just like our job is not done while Black people are being killed by police. Our job isn't over. And so we have to continue um, using pride as a vehicle for making that kind of change. Tom, thanks for your time today. That was historian Tom Hooper talking about Toronto's history of violence against the LGBTQ plus community. For Radio Humber, I'm Tyler Cheese. Long-term care homes are in a scramble to get vaccine policies in place for staff by July 1st. This comes after the government announced all staff will have to do one of three things. The goal is to have all staff members fully immunized. There's been some confusion around what these policies mean and what will happen to staff members if they refuse the vaccine. Corey Johnson, head of strategic communications from SCIU Healthcare, tells me it's not that they don't want to be vaccinated, they just don't have the resources to do it. The mandatory vaccine policy doesn't, and and this is where there's a a lot of misconception, it doesn't mean that staff members have to be vaccinated. It just means that these long-term care homes have to have a policy around. So in a lot of cases, there's three things there. You're looking at either um, proof of vaccination, which is the obvious one. There's exemption. So if there's a reason why someone couldn't be vaccinated, they need to provide proof of that. And then if they don't opt for one of those two, then they have to take some sort of education around vaccination so that at least they're informed before making that. Decision. One of the biggest questions that's come up throughout all of this is anything set in place for what happens if those staff members don't want to get vaccinated, even after going through the training process in those programs? Yeah, so I, I mean, if they if once they go through the education, they do have the choice not to take. It. So if there was a reason why they didn't want to take it, the nursing home cannot do anything against them. They're still allowed to work there unless they, and that's where it's a gray area with like Ontario employment. You can't force someone to get a vaccine unless it's before they're hired. So like you could have it as a condition of employment. So if they were to hire a new staff, they could make that a condition of employment. Um, But if they're already working there, you couldn't discipline them or or let them go. Just to give the overview, I mean, there's there's media numbers out there, some nursing homes, you know, 70 to 80%, some even lower of staff that aren't vaccinated. 
vaccinated. Um, I think a lot of that gets misconstrued talking to, to our workers, healthcare workers. A lot of that data comes from not so much the, the not wanting to get vaccinated. It's all about that the fact that they don't have um, the supports to get vaccinated. It, it's no secret that these PSWs or, or some of the kitchen staff there, the housekeeping staff, they work paid a check to paycheck. We know the government took forever to give paid sick days. So when, you know, the big vaccination rollout for healthcare workers was going on in the winter into the spring, there was no paid sick day program. Uh, and a lot of the workers we talked to just couldn't take the risk of getting sick and missing time off work, either to get vaccinated or from a reaction to the vaccine. And then on top of that, too, going back to the paycheck to paycheck, you know, sometimes they have to travel to get it, whether it's, you know, they, maybe they don't have a car, so they can't afford the transit to get there. Maybe they drive, but they can't afford the parking to get there. Has there been the conversation of how to bring vaccines to those healthcare workers? For sure. And I mean, like I said, there are some nursing homes, like I know of many in the GTA that like once a week, they can actually sign up and, and not only get themselves vaccinated, but their family and friends can go to the sign up for the nursing home and get it there. Because obviously, you know, if a nursing home worker is living with people that aren't vaccinated, that creates a, another situation as well. But it's not like a, a broad rolled out program and it, it should have been something done from the start. It was kind of like healthcare workers need to get vaccinated, but like kind of figure it out on your own and it should have been brought right to them if, if that was priority. It's not necessarily people refusing to get this vaccine for health issues. It's they just haven't had the ability to actually receive it or go get it. Yeah. And I think that's that's our always our main messaging with this. It's, it's not really, you know, and, and I'm, we're not against the long term care homes with these policies. We think, you know, it's a good thing to provide that education. We've done that education ourselves. We've held webinars and Facebook lives for our members talking about the reasons why they should get vaccinated and bringing on doctors to talk about, you know, the technology behind science behind the vaccination. So like, we're definitely in support of it. But it's not uncommon, you know, across the board, like nursing homes have been requiring people to get their flu shots for years. And this is really no different. But for us, when we talk to our members and then the, the healthcare workers, it's not about uh, not wanting it. It's just about the barriers to getting it. The other, like the biggest thing too, and this just changed, but again, it changed for vaccinated workers. And there's a reason behind the decisions. But if you really understand the healthcare space, you realize that like a PSW in a long-term care home or a, a housekeeper in a long-term care home may work two or three jobs just to make ends meet. And when you took that ability away from them, and, and that's what they did last year, they limited people to work in one nursing home, that money just got stretched completely. We got, we saw the $4 pandemic pay, which was temporary. We've seen the $3 enhancement for PSWs, which still isn't enough, but it also doesn't include, you know, recreation staff, housekeepers, cooks, dietary aides, stuff like that. So there's still that gap for those workers, which is disgusting, but you know, that also doesn't make up $3 an hour doesn't make up for the second and third income they were used to making. So when you put all that together and, you know, it, it's easy to say like, oh, well, you know, they can afford to take one day off work or, you know, they can afford the $20 to park somewhere to get the vaccine. The reality is a lot of these folks can't. Corey, thank you so much for your insight into the new mandatory long-term care home policy. Yeah, absolutely. Anything you need, happy to help. That was Corey Johnson, Head of Strategic Communications of SEIU Healthcare. You're listening to 96.9 Radio Humber. I'm Danielle Dupuis. Meanwhile, healthcare workers aren't the only ones who haven't seen a wage increase. Grocery store workers have been on the front line since the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, 
They're considered essential workers. However, their pay doesn't reflect that. Radio Humber's Claudia Kritschka has more on a new report to help grocery workers transition into better career options. On average, a grocery clerk makes $14.25 an hour, the minimum wage in Ontario. They received a $2 pay raise at the beginning of the pandemic, but within a few months, it disappeared from their paychecks. Michael Scarupa is a grocery clerk at a Mississauga store. He's been working at the same company for four years and only makes $14.50 an hour. The pandemic made him realize how valuable his position is. It was rather important to keep the grocery stores open, keep the food flowing as, you know, people were surging to hoard food as the pandemic started. A new report published by the Brookfield Institute in collaboration with the UFCW suggests the food retail sector is not a place to make a career out of. According to the report, students aged 15 to 24 often work in grocery positions. They make up more than 50% of the demographic. Because students occupy plenty grocery jobs, stores often report a high turnover rate. The average annual turnover rate can range from 30 to 100%. Many of these students end up finding better positions because of worries around job security and pay. In fact, the Pathways Forward report tailors specific job occupations for retail workers because of a growing concern around automation. Factors like self-checkouts and online shopping are taking away options to work at the supermarket. While Skarupa isn't worried about losing his job to AI, he does feel stuck about moving on. The unfortunate thing with the grocery clerk position is that it you can't really progress any further. Uh, with grocery clerk, you're kind of just stuck. Like that's the reason I'm more like moving into a, the renovation business. Renovations, childcare, home support, and food processing work are some of the suggested occupations from the report. All of which have a better starting rate than grocery clerks. The report acknowledges that these positions may not be suitable to everyone, but are possible suggestions to consider. For Humber News, I'm Claudia Kritschka. This month is National Indigenous History Month, which is a time for learning about appreciating and acknowledging the contributions of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. Mi'kmaq person Sarah Hannon is one of the artists who takes this opportunity to educate others on Indigenous culture through their beadwork. Hannon created a new CBC Arts logo containing Indigenous tradition and contemporary style. The logo is meant to celebrate both Indigenous and LGBTQ communities. Radio Humber reporter Irina Haminko speaks with the artist about their art and identity. This month is uh, National Indigenous Month, so how does it make you feel? Lots of feelings, <laughs> all the feelings. Yeah, I mean, it's great that it is National Indigenous History Month. I mean, for us, it's, it's kind of always Indigenous History Month. But yeah, it's this year, especially, I think it's a, it's an emotional experience for a lot of people. Why did you start reading? Is there any reason for that? Yeah, for sure. 
Um, yeah, so I started beading because I wanted a kind of tangible link to my culture. I wasn't really raised with any of my cultural traditions. The only person in my life who had any sort of traditional knowledge is my grandmother. And uh, it was always very important uh, to her that me and my brother and my cousins were acknowledged as Mi'kmaq people. So she spent a lot of her life trying to get status, trying to get federal status for us. That was a really big part, I think like too big of a part of, of for, uh, for our family of, of what it meant to be Indigenous and to be recognized as that. When I was in my early teens, I guess maybe 15, 16, about a year after uh, my grandmother succeeded in getting status for myself and my brother, our status was revoked uh, because they changed the rules for who qualifies as an Indigenous person under the federal government. It was really devastating. It was like this, just like a huge blow to my identity and what I thought like who I was as a person and it's like okay so I'm I'm Mi'kmaq but now I'm not a status Indian so nobody else believes that I am so am I um then I just kind of stopped thinking about it a lot and slowly started trying to get involved with my culture in a more personal way that wasn't affected by these kinds of outside influences. And mm -hmm. speaking of your logo that you do for that you did for CBC, um, how did you come up with it? I drafted it a few times. I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I took a look at what some of the other artists um, who did the logos in the past had done um, because I didn't want to repeat uh, what anybody else had uh, had designed. And yeah, I started with um, the, sh the sort of the gem shape that they had and just started mocking up patterns, put in the colors that I wanted, and then just started, you know, wheeling through ideas and came up with something that worked. Yeah. And could you explain the meaning behind this beadwork? So the centerpiece of the gem is a uh, pink floral in its pink, blue and white in the colors of the trans flag. And I put it against a black background. Um, and that is for, you know, just to honor Black and Indigenous trans people of color. The four corners of the gem are the four quarters of the medicine wheel. Um, and each of those have a traditional Mi'kmaq double curve motif um, beaded into those as well. Two large panels on the side are both rainbows. That meaning is kind of obvious. For Pride Month, top and bottom of the gem are the sun and the moon and the daytime sky and the nighttime sky. And that represents the circular pattern of time. And a lot of indigenous cultures don't perceive time as like a linear progression moving forward. Um, we conceive of it as a cycle that repeats itself over and over kind of for eternity sort of thing. Has uh, becoming an artist somehow helped you become more confident about your identity? Yeah, definitely. Big time. It's amazing because it has helped me connect like with my local community here more than like I ever had in the past because I never really felt that I had like um, that I had kind of like a gateway. I didn't know how to integrate myself. You know, like as a kid, I went to the Native Friendship Center a couple of times. We had a powwow once in Bannerman Park here in St. John's, but it was still felt all very, um, very distant for me. And now that I sort of have my own thing, I'm doing my own, I'm making my own contributions. It automatically opens up conversations with people. People want to talk to you. People want to learn from you. Uh, and not just local people either. Like I, I now have, you know, close friends who are um, Indigenous artists from 
all over Canada, which is amazing as well. And I can now like safely say that my identity is linked to my community rather than an outside assessment, which I think is the, the best thing. That was an Indigenous artist, Sarah Hannon. You're listening to 96.9 Radio Humber. I'm Danielle Dupuy. Exciting news as amusement parks have been given the green light to reopen for when the province moves to step two. Victoria Meyer has more. Amusement and water parks were happy to hear that they are finally included in the province's reopening framework. Step 2 is set to take effect on July 2nd, but just yesterday, Dr. David Williams, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, said that the province will remain in Step 1 for at least two more weeks. This news comes just after Canada's Wonderland announced its official opening date for July 7th. This is Canada's first amusement park to announce a reopening date since the beginning of the pandemic. There are some concerns that COVID numbers may rise with the reopening of these parks. Canada's Wonderland's media spokesperson, Grace Peacock, addressed these concerns, saying that the park will have strict protocols in place. This, this isn't going to be the same Wonderland experience that everybody will remember. We are opening with limited capacity, so there will be fewer people in the park. And uh, the way we're doing that is with a reservation system. So everybody's going to need to book their day of visit and their time of arrival. It's not time slots, it's just their time of arrival and then you're welcome to stay through the day. And this is going to help us manage guest capacity in the park and the flow of guests through front gate and make sure that everybody's got lots of space to spread out. Health and safety is the park's top priority and it will operate at 25% capacity. Uh, other protocols include a quick health check and uh, temperature check at the gate. And we're going to have enhanced cleaning in the park of all the high-touch surface areas, including the rides. And um, face coverings are going to be required uh, for all of our associates, plus all guests over age two. Waterslide lovers were pleased with the news that Wet n Wild Toronto will be reopening in early July, with an official date yet to be announced. Susan Kruzinga, Wet n Wild's Director of Communications, says they are currently awaiting capacity restrictions and told guests that all water attractions will be open. We are excited to have everyone back but there will be strict protocols in place. Masks will be required to get into the park but once on a water attraction masks can be taken off. You know ensuring that guests are still keeping a distance from one another. It seems like thrill seekers will be getting another summer of excitement as amusement parks prepare for a flow of guests. For Humber News, I'm Victoria Meyer. And even better news, finally, we can beat the heat this summer with one of the city's outdoor pools. Toronto currently has 10 locations for the public, with another 49 slated to open tomorrow. However, swimmers will have to reserve a spot online and follow COVID-19 protocols. Chris Holland is a deck supervisor with the City of Toronto with over 10 years of experience in aquatics. Rajesh Dave with more. Do you think the opening is premature, uh, given your experience as a deck supervisor, lifeguard, and aquatics expert, or do you think it's timely? Uh, I would say timely. I think we're all ready, and uh, we're ready to take whatever precautions necessary uh, if things are going to you know, be getting back to normal. I think as long as everyone's following the, uh, the uh, usual rules of the pool and uh, trying their best to uh, social distance while on the pool ground, then uh, all should be pretty good. What about you personally? How do you feel? Are you excited? Are you anxious for the reopening and to, to get back to guarding again? 
I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm very excited with the idea of things getting back to normal, but at the same time, I think that the right steps do need to be taken if uh, we are going to avoid another wave. According to the city of Toronto, over 24,000 reservations were made in just two days for swims. Um, do you feel this major surplus could, could pose a threat on the pool deck and in the aquatic environment? And how do you think lifeguards can kind of navigate that? I think 24,000 is a big number and it does, it does concern me a little bit. I, I love the excitement and enthusiasm of people, you know, want to get back at the pool, but at the same time, uh, you know, I could see that being a little overwhelming for uh, the lifeguards and myself included. But uh, like I said, we, uh, we are taking the right steps and uh, we are looking forward to things getting back to normal in a timely manner. What do you think the best way is for swimmers and for patrons and anyone using the pools and facilities really to stay safe um, this summer? So there's obviously the COVID-19 self-assessment, but do you think there's other things people could do or should do? Yeah, well, we're not going to be seeing many masks at the pool. Um, so I think just practice social distancing as much as possible. You know, if, if not with the people that you show up with and with uh, any other pedestrian that you are around in the pool area. What about your personal experience as a lifeguard uh, going through training? Did you have to, you know, kind of review your skills or do you feel confident rolling right into this extremely busy summer? Do you think? I feel, I feel really confident. You know, we've we're expecting a big summer because of the big rush of people that are uh, uh, planning on coming back. But I've, I've had many years of busy uh, occasions and such. So it, it's not necessarily anything new. It's kind of like retail when you're working at Black Friday, you know, it's like you, you could have done dozens of them, but it's still like a, a, bit, a big time that you have to prepare for. So, um, but no, uh, to answer your question, I'm very confident mm-hmm. that my team and I are going to do well. Do you think other cities and municipalities around Ontario um, should open or should Toronto kind of serve as like, a test of sorts and then kind of see how it goes and then extrapolate that? Or do you think other cities are ready to open up as well? I I think it's a good idea for them all to open at the same time. And the reason I say that is because if only a select few open, then those ones are going to be burdened with like, like we're talking about before thousands of people trying to come these very few locations. Whereas if you open them all up, then at least those, that big number is going to disperse amongst all the pools. And then we'll quickly find out if it's a good idea or not either way without uh, overburdening just like a small uh, percentage of the pools in the area. Recently, patios and outdoor dining reopened and a lot of establishments were struggling to kind of find enough serving staff and wait staff to uh, tend to the hours and the patron load. Do you think aquatics is bound for a similar fate or do you think there'll be enough staff? Uh, Very possible that we will uh, need more staff. yeah, it's a, it is a very competitive field too. So I think it, it will open a lot of new job opportunities for aspiring lifeguards and instructors. Um, but yeah, no, I think we'll definitely need uh, some extra hands on deck if uh, all this is going to go according to plan. Recently, the Life Saving Society lowered the age to get your NLS, your National Lifeguard Service, from 16 down to 15 um, in July 2020. Do you think this move was to do what you said and kind of help that um, surge in staff hiring, or do you think this was a bit premature? That I think is a bit premature. And I only say that because, uh, 
every course that you take in order to become a lifeguard is very necessary. So I don't feel like this should, this process should be rushed just for the sake of getting, like I said, extra hands on deck. Mm -hmm. I think it should be done properly in hiring people that are qualified, which there are plenty of out there who are still looking and waiting for jobs. There always have been. So I think it's, it's a good idea to kind of give those people the opportunity to um, help out first before you start lowering the age. That seems a little desperate to me, to be honest. For Humber News, I'm Vrajesh Dave. And that's it for At Humber on 96.9 Radio Humber. Today's contributors were Tyler Cheese, Claudia Kritschka, Irina Haminko, Victoria Meyer, and Rajesh Dave. Our technical producer is Noah Skanga. I'm Danielle Dupuy. At Humber is produced by students in the journalism and radio broadcasting programs on 96.9 Radio Humber.